This is episode 34 of the Rising Man podcast with Tony Moss. I am life. What is up, Rising Man community? Oh, can you feel it? Oh man, the energy is picking up with this Rising Man movement. I've been really really grateful for how this podcast is evolving lately and to be honest i realized that i had still been holding back my true voice and my true expression in this space even after over 40 episodes in the making and i decided no more no more of that no more holding back anymore because if you haven't noticed i'm letting the doors fly open more and more each episode we're bringing the conversation to the core of what we get to do as men of this generation to change the story of humanity in my opinion, in my purpose, in my mission, that's what I'm really here to do, is to shift the story that we get to tell the younger men that are coming up behind us. This is the opportunity we have to be the ones who decided that we get to go in a different direction. The way that we learned about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a human in this world, clearly isn't working for us. And so we get to shift that story that we're telling about humanity and we get to make it a success story, the greatest triumph ever in the history of the world. So I invite each and every one of you to join me as we deepen into this question right here. Who is the man I need to be in order for our home, our planet, our families, and our culture to survive and thrive? Not just survive, but thriving. Who is the man that I need to be? Who's the man that you need to be in order for everything that we care about, everything that we hold sacred to survive and thrive? So anyone who's fired up, anyone who hears that and is ready to play at that level will also be interested in the two programs I'm beginning to offer this fall. Yes, you heard correctly. Two programs this fall. I know that I've been talking about Compass in the previous episodes you guys might have heard. And I recently had the insight that that one program gets to be two. And the first component of that program is Elements. Elements is a three-day wilderness immersion training that I've designed to push you past your physical, your mental, and your emotional edges so that you can connect to your truth and your highest purpose while still building a lasting bond and brotherhood with the other men who show up for this experience. It's going to be tremendous. It's occurring the last weekend in October, October 26th, 27th, and 28th. Sign up today because seats are already starting to fill up. And this is the first time that I'm talking about it on the podcast. This is actually the first week that I'm talking about it. I mentioned it in the Monday morning meditation episode. So act now because I'm telling you guys, this opportunity is going to fill up real quick. The second program that I'm offering is Compass. And the Compass is going to be the four-month rites of passage experience that I've talked about. You may have heard on the Facebook Lives and on the other episodes that I've briefly introduced what Compass is. Um, it's created to initiate our men into their greatness. And if you don't associate with the term initiation, think of it as truly marking and crossing the threshold from the life that no longer serves you, the life of the boy, the life of the child that you're ready to leave behind and calling forth, calling yourself across the threshold into your manhood, into your adulthood, into the purpose you came into this life for. This is an experience like nothing else you've had before. Trust me. This is how we start to rewrite our culture. This is how we recreate 
what it means to be a man in the world today. Apply right now. Links are in the show notes and there's going to be more information to come in the next couple of weeks. I really encourage you guys who are fired up about this opportunity to take action right now because this could very well be the experience that changed it all for you forever. All right. So let me get to today's episode. This is one of the best conversations, not even not even just on this podcast, but one of the best conversations I've ever had. And I don't say that lightly. My man, Tony Moss, brought the heat. He He's a visual and recording artist and event producer and the founder of I Am Life, a nonprofit production company focused on interconnectivity. For Tony, the only lasting sustainable way forward for humanity is to bring together the best of indigenous and modern worldviews in what he calls a new story for humanity. His work is a synthesis of art, spirituality, science, and evolution of human consciousness and potential. And Tony is one of the best examples of a man who can hold both his masculine and his feminine gifts in the same container. That's really a gift. That is truly embodiment of, in my opinion, what it means to be a man in the world today. So in this episode, we we talked about a lot of things. We covered a lot of territory in a short amount of time. We examined the different expressions of masculine and feminine as they occur in every one of us and how they can be used effectively and how they can be used ineffectively as well. Tony also spoke about the challenges facing minority communities and men of color, especially when it comes to transformational work and personal development. He's had a lot of experience working with these types of communities and is very well versed on the resistances that occur inside of these communities of men. Our conversation steered its way into discussing connection to the earth plants and all life forms with a special allusion to the intertribal prophecy of the eagle and the condor. For those of you who are not familiar with that, it's an incredible, incredible story and something that is coming into fruition right before our eyes. In fact, most of us who are listening right now have lived through the transition that was prophesied about over 500 years ago. And at the end of the episode, we even touched on hot button topics such as cultural appropriation and how we can choose to have a different spin on this issue. So a power packed episode, to say the least. I won't give any more away. I'll let you find out. Without further ado, Tony Moss. All right. Tony Moss in the building. Brother, it's so good to be here with you today, man. I'm excited for this conversation right now. Yeah, me too. Thank you. This is uh, perfect timing and I'm really happy to be supporting your project. This is great. Yeah. And I, you know, we, we have a very serendipitous connection. You know, we, we've connected through the ceremonial community, but mm-hmm. it felt like brotherhood from the beginning. So I'm, I'm glad to have you on the show here. I'm also excited to dive more deeply into the work that you do and the message that you carry because as a musician, as an artist, as a creator and a, and a creative director of this I Am Life project that you have going on, all, all the things that you're doing in the world is really, I see it as a very unique combination of skills that you brought to the table. So I'm looking forward to picking your brain and seeing what you have to share with this audience, man. Um, Great. Before we dive into this conversation we've been formulating here, I want to ask you some questions that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And the first one is, what is the difference between a boy and a man? Wow, that's such a great question. And for me, because of the work that I do, I tend to think it has to do with responsibility. A man basically, well, I think an adult, but in this case, a man, 
is someone that not only accepts, but is able to respond to responsibility. Mm. I, I think it's almost time to stop asking this question. This is this is the 34th episode I've asked this question. And at this point, it's like you guys are reading the same script because oh, there's, a, there's a dialogue about ownership, responsibility, accountability that we're using to define the difference between a man and a boy, which I think is great because at, at last we're not talking about the difference between a boy and a man is getting hair on your private parts and and sleeping right. with somebody for the first time, you know? Right, um, right. So I don't know. I might have to toss this question out because you guys are all talking to each other before I interview, you know? <laughs> well, at the same time, what's cool about it is like you're, I guess through all those answers being similar, it becomes kind of a universal truth and something that's self-evident, you know? So that's cool. Right, right, man. Well, I, I started to bring in a second question because this one was starting to get so saturated. And that is, what is the difference between masculine and feminine? Oh, wow. That's a much tougher one, obviously. You know, I think my response is more of the archetypal response. You know, uh, in general, if you look at them as polarities, the feminine is nurturing and receives. I think the masculine tends to be more projectile, direct and protective. Yeah. But and, and obviously those qualities uh, vacillate back and forth. But I think there's some major distinctions. Mm-hmm. And so let me ask you a follow up question to that. How do you experience these two components within yourself, the masculine and the feminine? What's what's your experience of those two? Yeah, I feel relatively unique about me. And I know this because it gets commented on a lot is the fact that I do carry both those qualities that I'm simultaneously very direct and protective in a lot of ways while simultaneously being very loving and supportive and nurturing. Yeah, I really carried both of those qualities simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a nice segue into the conversation that I wanted to at least start off with you is there's so much of a challenge for most men out there to even admit that we all have masculine and feminine qualities because there's so much stigma associated with a man having feminine qualities. You know, if, if we mm-hmm. if we look back at locker room culture, anything that's deemed to be feminine or that of, you know, the qualities that we would normally associate with women or girls means that you're gay, you're weak, something of that mm-hmm. sort. And so right, right. immediately we transform this dialogue into masculine, feminine. doesn't mean man or woman. It's just different ends of, of the poles, right? Like you said, is that feminine is more creative, masculine is more direct and protective. Yeah. And so... So how, does he, how do you see that show up in, in the communities of men that you work with? Such a big conversation and a really timely one. I know most people still in the modern world, I mean, certainly probably less than in the past, are still equating masculine and feminine energies to gender to some degree or gender identity. I think historically we look at the masculine energy as what built civilizations, what built railroads, and the feminine energy supported that process and raised children and took care of the house, right? In the modern world, I think it's pretty obvious, but most, and a lot of people have written about this, that it's actually one of the struggles of the modern world is the masculine energy slash men needing to kind of recalibrate what being masculine in the modern world means in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I think today what we see is a lot of women who move up in the corporate world say that in order to do that, they have to call upon the more masculine energies. You know, and a lot of men in the modern world are saying, like, yeah, I'm discovering my more feminine side. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we're seeing those things play out. And I think it's really a a brand new conversation in a lot of ways because our definition and understanding of masculine and feminine are starting to shift pretty dramatically. Mm -hmm. And, And I know one of those communities where this conversation is 
really brand new, really, I think, cracking, beginning to crack the surface is in minority communities, specifically oh, yeah. men of color. Um, so I know you've been doing some work in those communities as a man of color yourself. And so tell us a little bit about what that journey is like and what you've what you've encountered in those communities when you present this possibility. The main reason is that counter to what I just said, that I find most men that I meet are in a new conversation about masculinity and what that means. I find when, like I did work on the East Coast a couple of years back with all men of color group that deal mostly, mostly with like um, rites of passage, transformational work. And it was interesting for, for them, the conversation about masculinity was really more traditional and it made sense. You know, the, these are guys that were mostly from like uh, Harlem, you know, in Brooklyn. And it wasn't so much about the feminine as it was about finding constructive ways to be masculine and constructive ways to put the masculine force to work, basically. Mm. Yeah. So they were looking at a redefining of masculinity as kind of re-owning masculinity, you know? Yeah, the idea of the feminine, at least in this conversation, still had some connotations of maybe weakness, although they definitely recognize the importance of I think particularly in this, in this case, the uh, African-American community there, there was definitely a conversation about what it means to be a man is to embrace feminine qualities in terms of like being there for your children, you know, being nurturing and not just reprimanding, punishing and uh, aggressive. That it also included listening when necessary and being soft when necessary. So that conversation was definitely unfolding there, but it was definitely a more traditional conversation about rights of passage and manhood. Yeah. And I've... Notice how that comes up, particularly when you when you speak to another man and you get a sense of, especially men who have children and men who have daughters. It's a great way of understanding that man is how he shows up with his with his children, especially with daughters, with girls, because girls want to do what their dad is paint his nails and have tea parties and and all those types of things. So are, are you the type of man who can drop into his heart to be with his daughter and be present with her? Or is that something that makes you as a man uncomfortable? And not to say that one is right or wrong, just that right. that's, a, that's a really good metric or gauge for the comfortability a man has going from one dynamic into the other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love that example because there's a good friend of mine, Mickey Willis. He's, he's a director of Elevate Film. I'm sure you know of him. Yep. Mm-hmm. And he released this video, as you know, that went viral. And the video is basically, uh, in a nutshell, most people will recognize it. It's him explaining that his son received two of the same presents uh, for a birthday. So he says, well, let's take one back and you can get what you want. So he goes back and the son picks out this Ariel doll, you know, like Princess Ariel. And the video is basically him telling him son, it's like, you know, what do you do as a you know, masculine father when your son decides he wants to get a doll? And he basically said, you embrace it. You know, it's like, you can do whatever you want embrace what you want to be, choose your sexuality, your mom and I don't care, we love you. And as popular as that was, as big a, uh, what do you call it, backlash as he got as well. That's how, that's how it always is. Absolutely. Right? Of course. Yeah. yeah. He, to me, I love that because Mickey is definitely, I think, what someone would traditionally see as a man's man. Mm-hmm. You know, he has a really strong presence. They call it gravitas, very alpha, a lot of swagger. At the same time, you know, would cry on a button, I saw him grab one of his employees once and you know, give him a hug. It was another guy. And, and I remember looking at him thinking, like, I just read something about the new man, like some kind of meme on Facebook. And I remember thinking, mm-hmm. like, that's totally Mickey. He has this quality, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, of realizing that a, a, a true man, I think, from a conversation he and I had, 
it's not about embracing the feminine as it is so much of not being afraid to be when it just comes up. Mm. You know, that, that has nothing to do with your masculinity and doesn't threaten it in some way. That you, that you can have your daughter paint your fingernails just for the fun of it and then get on with your business. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I've been playing around with this concept myself because obviously this is the Rising Man podcast. So this is geared towards men, the dialogue of what it is to be a man right now in the world. And yeah. I think that, like you said, this is a very current and appropriate topic to be talking about. I've been playing around with this concept that there's no more or less than. There's no man who's more or less of a man than anyone else, in my opinion, that we're just um, we just have different expressions of what we consider to be masculine or feminine. And to pass judgment on any man who is at one end of the super masculine spectrum versus a man who is deeply immersed in his feminine. To me, all that means is that that man has less dimensions, less qualities of himself that he can express at any given time, because a man like Mickey you know, he, he runs a business. He's a, you know, he's a, the patriarch of his family. So his family needs that masculine version of him. And he's got young kids and he's got a big heart. I know Mickey personally too. And so to be able to lean on that when the time is right, that rounds out the man and makes him multidimensional. And I think if there's any message that we can express to a guy who's listening to this, especially someone who's come from a background where the definition of man is to be hyper-masculine, just consider the different dimensions of yourself that are missing and the opportunities you have that you, you can't show up for if you don't have these Absolutely. other parts of yourself. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of conversation, I would say, in more contemporary spiritual, maybe even new age communities, this idea about the return of the feminine. And what they're really referring to is like a return to feminine values and uh, feminine kind of leadership, right? And in the process of that, you know, uh, every now and then I'll hear in a ceremonial context, some brothers say, yeah, but what about the masculine? And almost as if to say, like, feeling threatened that this looming return of the feminine somehow replaces or becomes stronger than the masculine. And the thing is, the women always explain, no, it's not about that. It's about balance. That even if the world needed a hyper-masculine quality of leadership at one time, what it now needs is balance. And that's where the feminine comes in. So I find a lot of men that I've talked to, um, that's really the conversation there. And they're like, I want to soften my edges. You know, I don't want to let go of the masculine part because that's valuable and the world needs that. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And at the same time, you know, you don't want to get caught up in some romanticized, dramatized stereotype of masculinity yeah, and what a man looks like. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with Which that. Which at one point in history might have been valuable, you know? For sure. And I come from the belief that everything that's happened happened for a purpose. And, and if we look mm-hmm. at it as an opportunity to learn, then there's always something there for us. And so there's also this part of the conversation between masculine and feminine where a lot of people out there believe that while the men in the past few generations were out bringing home the bacon and building empires, the boys were missing the presence of of the man in the household. And so there's another wave that the next the generations, my generation, the generations that are coming after me are believed, especially when it comes to the boys, to have been over-feminized. There's a lot of belief mm-hmm. that, you know, as a boy, you go through school, pretty much grade K through 12, and mm-hmm. you have a male teacher 5% of the time at best. Right. And so, so, so what do you think about that argument to the dialogue? Because a lot of people are saying, like, great, our boys have totally missed out on what the best parts of the masculine could while the men were out hunting. I'm sure one of the things you and I share is that to some degree, everything is the truth, you know? 
And I don't really buy that one for this reason. What I actually see is that during that time period, the example you're using, really like industrialization, what we've seen since then is really the, the traditional role of men in Western society. And you know, since that's the dominant culture being exported all over the world, we could say what we're seeing now is a lot of the traditional roles that were held by men have been replaced by machines, mm. right? Yeah, so what I think we actually found is, yes, to some degree, fathers were absent at work, and to some degree, they always have been. I think we're more looking at a lot of, well, a conversation of my assistant, David and I have a lot, is this idea that in a lot of ways, the industrial revolution slash capitalism has been a disservice to men because it hasn't kept pace with the what we know is an underlying necessary quality of or stage of development for young people in general, but in this case, particularly men. And that's right of passages and the relationship with adults and elders. Right? Mm. I think what we're really saying is during that time period, that's what was left behind. Uh-huh. Yeah, there weren't strong role models around because all the men were working, but also young boys were left to kind of like do something with their hormones and masculinity when the men weren't around. And meanwhile, these traditional jobs were being taken by machines. So instead they formed gangs symbolically, right? right? Yeah. And you start looking for other ways to get validated and find your position in the herd, quote unquote, amongst your peers. Yeah. I, I feel that that's probably a lot more accurate as to what was going on with the quote unquote feminization of men than the idea that men just weren't around because plenty of them were, that's for sure. Sure. Well then that's great. Let's, let's, let's toss out that previous argument and say that, you know, this this conversation about the men not being available is actually more that there's a disconnection between the generations. And and, and in tradition, why don't you speak a little bit, because I know you've, you, like myself, have spent a lot of time in indigenous ways. And so speak a little bit about the traditions of how elders would support youngers and how youngers would support elders back and forth. Yeah, my organization, uh, I Am Life, I founded it. It's now being run by an awesome group. Of, I, I want to say young people, but they've matured since we met. <laughs> One of the things we talked about early on that we wanted to focus on, not so much as a mission, but within our internal structure, was the idea of nurturing and preserving this relationship that we call between youth, adults, and elders, right? That there is a time when, and th- these are not only physical stages, but also symbolic stages of our growth. There's a period when you're the novice and you're the youth, right? And you have a lot of guidance and wisdom from adults and elders. Then at some point, you find yourself as the adult. And as we kind of said earlier, the adult is that stage when you start taking on and accepting life responsibilities, right? Eventually, through all the experience of that, with any luck, if the culture is in its job, you blossom into being an elder, right? Those roles are very distinct. You know, because the the elders learn a lot and keep pace with what's happening in the world from the youth. The adults continue to need elders for guidance and to move into elderhood. So they're really strong, reciprocal, and necessary relationships. What we've seen in the West, particularly, is a complete breakdown in that progression. We have youth, and we have elders who weren't seen as elders. Mm. And then we have a bunch of adults running around who didn't benefit from a successful youth, your sexual childhood that didn't have elders present. Therefore, they don't have respect for elders and they don't have access to the wisdom of elders. And the elders were also who led them through the rites of passages generally. Mm. When you have that breakdown, I think that's where you start to see a lot of broken, in quotation marks, and misuse of masculine energy. This goes for men and women, of course, but we're talking about men, so I'm just focusing on that. Sure. Yeah, I've met so many young men who... They start coming to our events, for instance, and eventually they hear about and want to do something like a sweat lodge. 
Okay. Then eventually it's like, oh, I heard about this vision quest. It's so interesting. They innately, organically, and naturally are drawn to the vision quest because some part of them knows, yes, I need to do some kind of authentic rite of passage where uh, by the end of that, I feel like not only have I kind of like accomplished this thing, but there's also this like proven, we'll call it uh, native technology for bringing ones into one's power and also being in touch with spirit and the empowerment that comes from that basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We focus on modern rites of passage, you know, modern ceremony and keeping alive in a really tangible way this connection between youth adults and elders. For us, that looks like bringing indigenous people that we've met from Peru all over the world to sit in events we call connections events, where they actually sit with young people, mixed audience, of course, but basically share their wisdom. Yeah, kind of sensitize young people to the value of eldership. It's like, whoa, these people have a, have a lot to learn from them, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what the elders always tell us is like how inspired they are by being in a room full of bright, aware young people, right? So they're inspired and it informs their eldership as well. I've often said, you know, elders are made by youth. You know, we learn how to be elders by the young people calling upon us and demanding guidance, right? right. And wisdom. You know, they pull it out of you. Yeah. Oh, that's what you just said right there, actually dropped some major wisdom in, in for me because I'm, I'm 31 years old, man. I, I know that I'm still far from elderhood. But as a younger man, I remember what it was like having that void, recognizing there was a void in my life where I didn't have that elder mentorship. It's actually what brought right. me from the East Coast to the West Coast was I couldn't uh, find any men that I trusted that I could lean on for, for that wisdom. And you look, speaking on the other side of that, being closer to elderhood, you're saying that the young people demand of you what they need to, to, to help you rise into elderhood. That's, I love that. I, I'm going to hold on to that one because that makes it so clear. Yeah, you know, and I, I say that not only to my experience in the last probably five or six years since starting this project, but I remember actually on uh, my 40th birthday, yeah, I was definitely not only youthful in my uh, outlook, but just youthful in appearance, you know, just you know, mm-hmm. age really gracefully. You still are. Yeah. You look great. <laughs> not, not complaining. Yeah. But uh, this uh, young girl came over and she's, I just want to thank you, you know, for everything that you're offering. You know, you're like a true elder in the community. And I was like, elder? <laughs> it, it wasn't uh, in any way, shape, or form something that I took offense to. It's just I had never considered that at some point, wow, at some point I'm actually going to be that. Like I'm going to mm. need to like start looking at what kind of elder, you know, because at that time I was barely an adult, to be honest. Like, what's that going to look like and what kind of qualities do I want to have to share and how am I going to get there? And I tell you, literally from that conversation on, there started to be kind of requests and a demand from the young people in my community to step into that role. Mm-hmm. It was more that I'd never been considered that before. And it brought up a lot of questions for me, you know, what does it mean to be an elder? How am I going to be an effective elder? And what, how does one grow into that? You know, and what I learned quickly was the community from that moment on actually started calling those qualities out of me. You know, people would call and say, hey, we're having a confrontation. Can you mediate? You know, young people would call and want advice on this or that. You know, what I found was each one of those conversations brought forth a different quality of me that I definitely had innately and didn't realize. But suddenly they were being called out and needing to be shared. And it started to like anchor this process of, you know, what I, you know, I still, as I jokingly said, you know, I refer to myself as like a baby elder because I have elders that I go to for advice. Right. But definitely for a lot of people in my community, the role of elder, I am 
definitely in at this point and on the journey of it. It's been a really amazing experience of self-discovery, honestly. Yeah. And, you know, I remember being back in college. Um, one of the terms that was brought to my attention I'd never heard of before was ageism. And, you know, yes. if, you know, we've got racism, we've got classism and ageism was something where, you know, it's the way that old people or elders look at young people as, oh, you're just a bunch of whippersnappers. You guys don't know what you're doing. You're overprivileged right. and et cetera, et cetera. And it goes the opposite way, too, where young people look at elders as, oh, man, you're just you're just old and broken and feeble and you don't mm -hmm. have anything to offer. And so I always look to society to tell us exactly what's happening. And the fact that we're putting our elderly, our grandparents, our parents into nursing homes to be cared for by other people who don't know them, who don't know yeah. their stories. Um, in many cases, they receive loving care, but in, in a lot of cases, they also don't. And the same thing with kids on the opposite end of the spectrum. We've got kids, when their parents can't show up for them as parents, they're going into a foster system. They're being yeah. passed around between how many different families before they finally are declared as an, an adult at the age of 18. So if you look at the evidence in society, we're clearly missing the point that you're describing here is the youth adult elder connection. There's a, there's a break in the chain. Absolutely. Yeah. That's such a great example. You know, I think one of the great many tragedies that you can definitely correlate to capitalism as it is practiced, not as an economic system, but as a, a culture, you know, this idea that everything is built around your, your productivity. You're really an adult when you can get a job and start consuming things. Right. And you're really no longer value to society when you're no longer working and also consuming a lot of things. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, in that there is a tragic loss of the presence of elders in the home, particularly at a time when both the mother and the father are out working and women are doing what men traditionally uh, used to do. So the youth are just kind of left to flounder. And I think I have found because I worked with youth for many, many years, um, a lot of different capacities. What I found often was that young boys would come to me for advice on, let's say, a relationship. And what I would find consistently was their entire notion of women and what it meant to, a to be in a relationship came from other young boys, not from men or elders. Right. Or from watching, or from watching media, right? Yeah, or pornography, like, you know, especially yeah, in this generation. Exactly. Yeah, and I was talking to these young men and I was like, where did you get that idea from? And I started realizing, oh, you got it from other young adolescent men who aren't in conversation with adults and elders. <laughs> well, the, the, the other guy who has an older brother who told them what it's like to, to be with a woman, right? That's how we exactly. learned. You know, I, I learned everything, everything I needed to know about sex from my friend who had an older sibling. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's it. That's the problem. That doesn't work for yeah. our society. Yeah, it doesn't. Certainly, it doesn't work for healthy uh, relationships with men between men and women. It's also not working for just men and their relationship with masculinity in, in the world. When you're you're learning about how to be a man from a bunch of youth who had no guidance. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's ironic, but it's it's the blind will lead the blind if there's no oh, one absolutely. else there to take the torch to take the helm, and yeah, and that's absolutely. and that's really the core of the work that men like you and myself are doing here is is being I think I like to think of us as a bridge the bridge generations between those that have come before and those that are coming up now is that we can yeah. begin to rebuild the ladder we can begin to rebuild the bridge between these generations from beginning of life to end of life so that it, that circle is continuous yeah absolutely something else we share that I know um, you're deeply interested in too not only the relationship between youth and elders in general, but youth with indigenous culture and the wisdom that elders 
have imparted um, and, and are at the foundation of those cultures. Mm. And be, one of the things I love about the Red Road, for instance, as a pathway uh, slash Native American church is the emphasis that's on the relationship between youth and elders, you know, about having respect, referring to uncles as uncles and you know, grandfathers and how one conducts oneself in social situations, knowing what your place is, like when it's appropriate to do certain things and when it isn't. I find a lot of young males, particularly young white males that I've met, when they first encounter the ways of like, let's say the Lakota or the Red Road, that's the thing that's most challenging to learn for them. Like they literally have no idea, a lot of them, like why they're being asked to do certain things, why you need to wait before the elders speak, you know, why you behave with humility, you know, and respect at all times, particularly in certain like social gatherings. And once they get that, man, it's, it, it starts to permeate all areas of their life. They realize like, oh wait, these teachings are about how I conduct myself as a, a person in society, not just in this ceremony mm-hmm. or in this social situation. And the respect I'm giving the, the chief or the leader of the ceremony is respect I should be giving all elders, relatively speaking, because some mm-hmm. of them are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Let, yeah. Let's get real about Everybody's that. got some crazy elders, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this idea too that, you know, I was just hearing somebody speak about this the other day. Your amount of years on the planet do not make you wise necessarily and don't necessarily make you an elder. Mm. Right? Yeah. We've met plenty of 79-year-olds, you know, who are still behaving like children and don't give good advice at all and you wouldn't want to leave your kids with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think it's more about uh, people that for whatever reason aged in a way that they were able to access I would say their cultural or in some cases indigenous wisdom and also were put into positions where they had to administer that wisdom, you know, and mm. share it with the community. Yeah. Right. Right. So just going back to that last statement you shared, if it's not mm. the amount of years we've lived on this planet that serves wisdom, then then what is? Well, you know, it's a combination certainly of life experience, but it has to be life experience tempered with, and this is where I think the, the culture comes in. It's your life experience tempered with, for lack of a better way to describe it, I think, again, going back to this term of rites of passage and ceremonial practices that are woven into the culture, right? So that there's, along the way, there are opportunities for maturation, right? Mm. Not only uh, maturity being called upon, right? But opportunities where uh, only maturity is going to serve you or the community. You know, an interesting example just popped into my head because my sister and I mentioned, Dave and I talked about this recently. This idea, for instance, of midlife crisis, right? In a lot of indigenous cultures, that's just recognized as one of the other developmental phases in life, right? Oh, you're moving from, let's say, adulthood into your elderhood. What's that going to look like? Um, Time to take stock of everything you've learned and kind of makes this transition. Because we don't have any acknowledgement of that in Western culture, what it looks like instead is older men that suddenly panic and because they have money, they buy sports cars, dump their wives and get young girlfriends. Mm, Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's called a midlife crisis. And I think it is a crisis. It's a crisis because you know that some shift is now happening or needs to happen in your life. And there's no constructive place to make that transition. And it's certainly not being seen as a culture, in our culture, as valuable. Right? So what I see is, as opposed to saying like, hey, this is awesome, you're now becoming an elder, you know, we're going to be looking forward to you being in this new role. And Western culture slash capitalism consumerism, that's instead of saying, oh, you're in the descent now, 
you only got a few years left, so you better like, get all you can, because right? pretty soon no one's going to value you. Well, that's that's a great example of um, one of the things our our brother Rudy says, flipping the tortilla. You know, in in this modern culture, yeah. with men who go through midlife crisis, it's like, oh, there's that old guy who's scared to get old, so he's buying the sports car and dating the younger chick again, right? And right. the same thing with women. For women who go through menopause, instead of it being something that's honored in, in indigenous cultures, they call it their second change, right? Right. And in our culture, it's like, oh, there's that moody, temperamental, you know, overheating yeah. woman again. Well, bitch, bitch. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's it's really important. I love that you bring in this part of the conversation is how we can, in your words, blend indigenous wisdom with modern worldviews. I, I pulled this right out of your website because I loved it so much. A new cosmology, yeah. a new story is what we're writing right now. So so in your opinion, what is that new story that we're writing right now that we get to, to write? The new story for me is a concept you're familiar with, and we will briefly explain it for anybody that isn't. It's really the underlying meaning and wisdom behind the ego condo prophecy basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, really Can you explain the ego condor prophecy and then? Yeah. Yeah. Just to be able to bring everybody into the same page, the ego condor prophecy, indigenous cultures all over the world, roughly 500 years ago, received through their elders and spiritual leaders, the premonition that the, the tough times were coming, the genocides, the colonization. And they said, you know, this is going to be a really rough time, uh, but don't worry in 500 years time, this will pass and the eagle and the condor will fly together again. What they're referring to was the splitting of the Americas. So the condor representing uh, South America, the way of femininity, you know, nature, the heart, and the eagle representing North America, which is the way of masculinity in the mind, right? And we did see that split. We're seeing it everywhere, you know, um, the split between nature and science, you know? Well, now what we see in the world is those things are slowly starting to pull back together again. And something I share all the time is, you know, if you look at it, the, the best way, and in a lot of ways, the only way forward for humanity is now to have a blend of indigenous, the best of indigenous wisdom and cosmology mixed with new Western understandings you know, about the world and cosmology and technology. And we bring those things together. And to me, that's the new story. It's like, can we take the best of what evolution and Western thought and technology has brought us and mix that with the way of the heart, interconnectivity, indigenous wisdom and ways in cosmology, and then we move forward as one people. So I like that that's the, the new story for me. It's sustainability, it's an embrace of technology, put to use like any other tool. It's definitely bringing together masculine and feminine, okay, to bring our conversation full circle, bringing the masculine and feminine into balance so that we can move forward as like holistically on the planet, basically, and into the next seven generations, obviously. Mm. I, and I like how we come back to balance because I know for me, as uh, as a young disgruntled man coming into the world at, in like in my <laughs> early twenties, I was like, "This is bullshit. We got to get rid of all this industry and technology. Yeah. We got to go back into the woods and we got to live primitively." And you know, as a slightly wiser version of myself, <laughs> a decade later, I'm recognizing right. that you know we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't need to get rid of everything that we've created because there has been a lot of amazing evolutions and innovations that make society better. I think it's just a matter of, like you said, sifting out what doesn't serve that new cosmology we're creating. Yeah. You know, as I, I love this metaphor and this idea of thinking of technology as fire because it is, it's a result of, you know, I remember hearing someone say many, many years ago in some talk, kind of like the moment that, we discovered how to work with fire. Like 
that changed everything, obviously. And that image of the caveman sitting around the fire and learning how to start a fire became us booting our computer, really. There's a direct link, right? Mm -hmm. So what I like about that is I often think of our current relationship with technology is basically we're still young people learning to play with fire, basically. <laughs> well yeah. said. Well said. Yeah, and that um, it's, it's not something we fully understand still. It's something that we have some control over, and it's something that if we don't watch, is very dangerous and can burn the village down. And that's where we're at. Mm. Well said, man. I I hadn't heard it put into that type of uh, that metaphor before, but I think that really works. Is you know, technology is a very new thing, and because of the power that technology and the internet and and a lot of these innovations hold, it's accelerating mm. quickly. And when things accelerate faster than we can process and diagnose, then they tend to, to run rampant for a while before we wrangle them again. It's kind of like letting the, letting the steer out of the, out of the pen. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love that what you just shared and it brings us back to something you, you brought up earlier in the conversation, you know, this is the role of masculinity in that. That's exactly what we're talking about is the world is moving so fast and exponentially everything from industry to even how um, food is being grown. And I think, yeah, I'll, a lot of men are looking for how to place themselves in that and what do we do with the masculine energy now? And I think for indigenous cultures, it's, it's really displacing and that traditional role of the men in some places have been completely uprooted. And in some places where we see is um, like alcoholism, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, that without the, the demand of the community for men to be men traditionally and nothing to replace that they fall into boredom and eventually hang out with their friends in the quarter and drink alcohol. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. yeah. Or the equivalent, I'm saying that symbolically, but we do see it everywhere and it's particularly showing up in indigenous cultures yeah, that are new to, if you think about it in the West, we kind of had a gradual ease into technology, even though it's exponential. You go to like Peru and some of those indigenous people are like, bam, here's technology. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. It's an even right. even quicker learning curve in those exactly. communities. Yeah, and it, it, as embraced as it is early on, because it's like new form of magic. Um, what they don't see, you know, I was talking to the Awanawa uh, recently, and uh, what they don't see coming is the huge negative impact that technology has on the community, without this long period of kind of like easing into how to work with it, basically. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, suddenly it's there and you realize that it's actually, once the glitter of it is worn off, you realize the uh, huge impact and disruptive impact it can have. Yeah, I know. I, I for sure have seen that in the Southwest uh, on the reservations out there. I spent some time living out there and being amongst yeah. the youth is kind of where I naturally gravitate to. And a lot of those children and communities are isolated from culture, but they're, yeah. con they're connected now via their computers, their smartphones. Right. And so the cult, it's, it's like the, it's, you know, with, without putting too much judgment on it, a lot of the ugly parts of human culture is being pipelined right into these children who live on these reservations Absolutely. to the point where they're completely casting away their their own culture, the richness, yeah. the beauty of millennial, millennia long lines of legacy and tradition yeah and so um you know without dramatizing the problem there is an issue there and, and I, I just think it's so important to bring this work back together where we're blending what you said the indigenous and the sacred yeah. along with the modern and the new yeah you know i went to ecuador uh some time back and with uh my friend and assistant david again who i mentioned 
And one of the interesting things, I this wasn't like a revelation, but I got to see it firsthand. You know, the guy who took us on that trip, his name is Jonathan Miller Weisberger. He did a lot of work early on with helping the indigenous tribes to demarcate their land. And as a result, you know, this group we were visiting, the Sekupai, were living on land that officially the government recognized as their land, right? This is yours. The interesting conversation that came up, though, was like, who's going to live on it, right? Because what we ended up with was a lot of elders who had been in that struggle. Now they had their land back. But what they had was villages full of young people that wanted to be on iPhones and go to the city and buy things. Right. So it's like, oh, now we've got this land. And well, what does the future of the tribe look like or the culture in this sense when all the young people basically don't value the indigenous, the value of the indigenous ways of living on the land? Because once they get iPhones, all they see are these, like, like you say, very unrealistic, hyperbolic images of what consumerism looks like if you go to the city, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what really, what women look like and what men should look like, you know? And then you have this model of the Yawanawa who successfully bridged that gap, you know, like um, have really brought their culture together, embraced technology, sent their young people by their own volition to schools and universities, but to come back and give to the village. And now they're working on a project. They realize, oh, the next thing we need is, uh, we've looked at all the different options and we got to bring solar power to the village, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in that tribe, we're seeing like a, a, a healthy embrace of technology and a recognition of the negative impacts if it's not handled carefully. Mm-hmm. For a lot of other tribes, it's, it's come so new that it's just disruptive. Mm. Well, I, I definitely want to hear more from you about, I don't know if I'll pronounce this properly, but the Yananawa? Uh, Yawa Nawa. Yeah. Yawa Nawa. Okay, so right. uh, we'll get we get to talk about that. Maybe that'll be a follow up episode because I know we're kind of yeah, yeah. running to the, into the buzzer now. But it's good to it's good to hear that. It's good to see that it, it can be done in a good way like that. Absolutely. And, and I'm just kind of appreciating the irony of this conversation. I know I've had other guys come in here and talk about um, plant medicines and and you know the, the ayahuasca communities are really starting right. to expand all over the place for better or for worse. And right. it's, it's so ironic that these. Um, these these native and indigenous peoples are going into the cities, and people from the cities are going into the jungle. <laughs> it's like oh, it's yeah. like it's yeah. such an interesting uh, illustration of how life always ends up being a circle, and things move in, in cycles. It's true, and I tell you, one of the places where that shows up really positively is this has happened in quite a few cultures. So I'll just speak in general terms. What we've seen lately is uh, the young people leave the villages, uh, speaking metaphorically, the indigenous ways because they're not valued and they want to go to the city, right? And what happens is Western people discover, let's say, the Shipibo, right? Mm-hmm. And all of its value and technology. And suddenly the young people are like, whoa, wait a minute. All these people over the world are coming to my country now and wanting to sit with my grandfathers. You know, and my, there must be something of value there. Then they go back and want to learn how to be shaman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe it's kind of a funny, ironic way for that to come back around. But if that's if that's exactly. the result and it ends up creating this alchemy between the old and the new and the and the yeah. sacred and the modern, then, hey, it's it's got to be good for something. You know, somebody, we're doing this big event. Uh, it's a global synchronized cacao ceremony with this group called Entheon Nation. And somebody wrote, I posted the event and apparently I didn't see it. One of my crew did. Someone wrote some comment about ah, appropriation. You're doing the cacao began with the Mayans. I'm like, yes, it began with the Mayans. They gave it to the world. And now everybody has cacao, right? Yeah. And there's something we talk about, the distinction between like appropriation, as my good friend Tete says, inclusion, adaptation, evolution, right? To host a cacao ceremony is not 
suddenly claiming the, the history of cacao and the culture for yourself. It's acknowledging that here is a perfect example of a, a power plant, we call it a plant teacher, a plant medicine, that has been commodified and turned into Hershey's chocolate, right? Mm-hmm. And suddenly the world is like, oh, wait a minute, cacao is more than that. It actually has a lot of value. So when you do events like cacao ceremonies, you're actually honoring the, its native roots and you're bringing that plant back to its rightful place in the culture, you mm-hmm. know? Like this actually has a lot of teaching and wisdom to share. So I just think of that symbolically to what we're talking about, you know? Oftentimes it takes global or Western recognition of something for even the people in the indigenous culture to suddenly go, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, this is valuable. The world is valuing our ways. We should be valuing them too. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad we're squeezing this in at the end here because this is yeah. a really big hot button topic. This, um, so many whistleblowers out there want to want to push the red button as soon as they see a somebody adapting or appreciating culture right. that that isn't, isn't theirs right immediately cultural right and, and so of course i think that that's a worthy conversation to be having because sure. in order to embrace another culture i think there's a level of honor and integrity and also willingness to listen and learn about where that Absolutely. culture comes from instead of you know instead obviously i'm not talking about blackface as being a good thing you know where people are painting their right. faces and stuff um but I think it's important. We're wearing Native American headdresses at festivals. <laughs> exactly. All of these types of things, you know, but to recognize that there is a way for this to create an even deeper dialogue and that if we if we are calling things cultural appropriation, then we're still supporting segregation of cultures and separation of Absolutely. races, which ultimately all all indigenous teachings, all, you know, ancient lineages of teachings talk about us being one race. You know, Absolutely. we all have blood is one color. And and yeah. and we're missing the point there. So, anyway, that's that's something that I take a, a personal issue with, and I, so I'm glad that you gave some context to that. Yeah, because if you think about it, you know, to close this section off, based on what this person was saying, that's like saying only the Mayans, who traditionally, in terms of how we think about them, aren't even on the planet anymore. We know the people are, but the culture is no longer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, vibrant in, in the way that we look at them through a historical lens. So that's saying like, oh, well, you guys should never work with cacao. That only belongs to this group of people. So the, the beauty and the gifts and the wisdom from cacao ceremonies, the, none of the rest of the world gets to benefit from that or celebrate that, right? Yeah, and we know that doesn't work. Evolution shows us if you're just looking at the cosmos, you know, the laws of entropy, things constantly diversify and get more complex, you know? Right. And we're at a plate now, I love something you said earlier, you know, all these different cultures. The beauty is that each of the cultures brings these beautiful gifts and traditions forward, right? Ideally, in an ideal world, to be shared and celebrated amongst each other. Yes. You know, we see our use of working with cacao and guayasa tea as part of that conversation. We're not appropriating anything. We're celebrating and bringing forth these plants into the contemporary culture so that we can basically foster this idea of right relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that the antidote for those people who feel offended by other people appropriating culture, quote unquote, mm-hmm. is that there's a level of honor and listening and, and willingness to learn that that is missing. And that and that's the yeah. other fair side of that argument, too. So I think yeah, it, you, we get to bring balance to that. Yeah, you nailed that earlier, and I appreciate that's exactly the difference. If, you, if you're going to host a cacao ceremony, go study the history of cacao, find out where it comes with or where it comes from, how it's traditionally used, right? Same thing, obviously, with, you know, the Red Road, Lakota practices or ayahuasca. You know, there's, as you know, the classic kind of, this is metaphoric, you know, a young white guy goes to Peru, has one amazing ayahuasca ceremony and comes back and decides he's a shaman, right? right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and buying ayahuasca from inappropriate sources that aren't sustainable. Like, okay, that's appropriation, right? Yeah. But the same guy that goes to Peru or Colombia and studies diligently, learns how to make medicine, works with teachers, and then comes back and wants to share this medicine with the people, that's not appropriation, right? Mm. That's an honoring and a dissimulation and an adaptation and an evolution with the blessings of the indigenous people. Okay, yes, you've earned the, the right to share this medicine. That's a very different story than appropriation. Yeah, and, I, and I've, I've seen plenty of folks who are not of native culture, but know way more about the culture than Absolutely. even folks who are part of those, part of those communities. And so Absolutely. I think that the lesson for those, for those of us in the Western world who might miss the stage of honoring and really taking the time to learn, the lesson is to slow down. Nobody, yeah. nobody becomes a shaman overnight. Nobody becomes one who walks with medicine overnight. And that's one of the biggest lessons for us in this culture is to slow down to the speed of wisdom and listening so that we can, so we can really learn and understand the richness of it. And there's some things in life literally can't be bought. Uh-huh. You know, they have to be earned. Yeah. And I think that's one of the distinctions. And we could even tie that back into our overall conversation about masculinity. You know, native wisdom, the ability to be an elder to learn how to work with plant medicines. doesn't matter how much money you make. You can't buy that. You actually have to go study, mm-hmm. you know, sit with and, and actually earn through experience and rites of passages how to come out the other side with authentic ownership or whatever it is. You know, you're not going to go on the internet, hit a button, and I don't care if you pay $10,000 and get a shaman's degree. People shouldn't be sitting with you, right? <laughs> yeah. But I paid $2,000 for it. I took an online course. <laughs> Well, well said, man. Well said. We we definitely nailed it on the head there. Cool, brother. Well, listen, I, I, it's funny. We got on this we, right before this conversation. I said, we're going to try and keep this under an hour unless we're getting into something really juicy. And of course, that's what we did in the last 10 minutes. Of course. Um, yeah, it's always the case. <laughs> let's, just, let's just leave it for volume two. Anything that's left unsaid, we'll leave for volume two. Sounds good to me. But let's, let's do these lightning questions. I always finish so you can be really laser with yeah. these ones. What is one thing you've learned in your life that you wish you knew when you were 18? The value of, funny what we were just talking about, I wish I'd known the value of indigenous culture. Mm. Because it came to me way late in life. Mm -hmm. And what do you think is the most important value to have as a man? As a man specifically, um, balance. Yeah. Knowing when it's okay to be full-fledged masculine in all of its force, you know, and directness. And knowing when it's okay to back off from that and be soft and nurturing and reciprocal. Yeah. Uh, I think balance. Right on, man. And lastly, how can people follow you, learn more about I Am Life, what you're up to, the socials, whatever you want us to know about you, man? That's sweet. You know, everything that I do is basically contained within this project. So it's IamLifeProject.org. Yeah, one word, I am life project, And not only references to everything we've been talking about for the most part, but the other work that I do all kind of derives from that site. And people can also contact me through that site as well. Awesome. And of, of course, I'll make sure I put those links up in the show notes. Tony, man, thanks for taking the time. You can come on this show and chat with me Anytime, brother. This is one of the best yeah. conversations I've had. <laughs> Vice versa. You know, and I'll close by saying you, you said it at the beginning, you know. I remember uh, meeting you for the first time. We were probably standing around a table or something. And I, I remember like suddenly glancing up and you look back over at me. And I had that moment of like, there's somebody that actually looks at you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's just this moment, you know, and I just, I'm not surprised we're uh, having this conversation now just from that moment. 
So thank you for just showing up the way you do. Right on, man. And and likewise, I see what you're doing in the world. And and after this conversation, I appreciate it on a whole nother level too. So keep doing what you do, man. And, and uh, we'll catch up with you farther down the road. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Jenny. I'm sure you guys could hear in my voice during this episode just how excited and lit up I was because Tony is a brother of mine. I've only known him for, I guess, about six months now. And in that time, we've only actually had two or three exchanges. But I very quickly recognized who this man is and what he brings to the table. And I tell you guys, there's not many more people as genuine, as authentic, as real as Tony. And when we talk about committing your life to your purpose, to your vision, to your mission, to your gift. Here's a guy who does it with absolute integrity and humility. So I really encourage you guys to go check Tony out, check out what he's doing. He's in the LA, he's LA based in the greater LA area. So he's doing a ton of fantastic work down there for all you guys who are part of my LA Rising Man crew. Make sure you look up Tony right now and get involved in what he's doing down there. And if this message resonates with you, I strongly encourage you to apply for Elements and Compass. If you're looking to finally create the life you've always wanted and break through all the stories, all the beliefs you've had about yourself that don't serve you and find out what you're truly made of, claim your spot today. Hit the application link inside the show notes, claim your spot. The seats are already starting to fill up. The butts are hot in the seats right now. So take action today, fellas. Remember, this is, this is what I'm always talking about, is taking action, moving forward, moving towards that true north that you feel inside you. So make it happen. Also join the Rising Man Facebook community if you're not already a member, register today. If you are, Stop what you're doing for a minute, pause this podcast, go over to facebook.com slash group slash the rising man and invite some of your brothers into the community. Invite at least five because this is how we're going to get this message all across the world. This is how we're going to get an entire generation of men to rise up into their greatness for the sake of the planet, of our communities, of our families, of everybody that depends on us. All right. Make sure you guys check out the show notes for all the links and resources mentioned in this episode and other episodes at therisingmanpodcast.com. Subscribe or follow on the podcast app of your choice. Leave a review or comment with your biggest takeaways, insights, and reflections from each episode, either on the app that you use to listen or at therisingmanpodcast.com. Check us out on Instagram at therisingmanpod. Shout out to Sean Offenbach over at Infinite Melodics. That's at Infinite, M-E-L-O-D-I-X on Instagram. My brother, you are crushing these episodes every single week, making us sound like pros up in here. Appreciate you, brother. For the rest of us, until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.